you for joining Associated Luxury Hotels International on this episode of Beyond the Meeting Room. Beyond the Meeting Room is hosted by Alhai's President and CEO, Michael Dominguez. Each episode, Alhai shares candid conversations on a variety of topics to enhance your personal and professional life. Today's episode is brought to you by Intercontinental Buckhead Atlanta, an iconic luxury lifestyle hotel in the heart of Atlanta's most prestigious neighborhood. With 422 newly redesigned rooms and 31,000 square feet of event space, this iconic hotel exudes Southern charm at every corner. Today, we are joined by Dr. Helena Bosky, a world-renowned applied neuroscience psychologist who combines scientific research with illustrative stories to provide practical tips to help us lead happy, healthy, and productive lives. Launching from her speech at Alhai's International Executive Exchange, she discusses the importance of sleep and how it detoxes our brain, how both routine and spontaneity are imperative to overall brain health, and the best tips to battle anxiety and gain more happiness. Helena, thank you for joining us. And I, as we were just talking a second ago, as we're prepping for this, I, I was so excited about this conversation because uh, I got to meet you for the first time uh, for our audience in the in the Netherlands at our event. And um, I've always been the person that goes down a rabbit hole when we start talking about behavioral science and neuroscience and what that means to the meetings industry and bringing people together. So first and foremost, thank you for joining us. And I'm going to be excited to uh, for all of us to get to learn a little more about our brains. Thank you, Mike. Well, I just have to say a big thank you to you too for asking me to join you in talking about something that's very close to my heart, or should I say my head? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's an area that I'm really passionate about. And I just think we have so much uh, learning to do when it comes to the brain and so much work we can do to help look after it better. So well, yeah. Th thank you for joining us. And I couldn't agree more. We, um, we, we, I tend to think uh, at times, and we, we, we were just talking about this a minute ago that uh, the, the, the more, the more we learn, the, the less we know. Um, I, can you talk a little bit to that and that philosophy? Because I, I, I'm a firm believer in that. And, and I think we kind of get stuck in our ways. And, and that is always an important one for us when we're starting to look at how do we really engage people and how do we bring them a little bit more forward? Uh, I think understanding is going to be better for that. Yes, I think, well, ex experience and expertise can actually, instead of broadening us, it can narrow us down. And the more expert we become in anything, the more uh, the more fixed we become in what we're good at, what we can't do, what we can do. And the brain is so malleable and so plastic, but it really also likes to have um, habits and make things automatic. And this is what we call expertise. To push these boundaries, it takes quite a lot of effort and determination and patience um, and to work through frustration. Uh, and you know, learning has to come with some element of pain. But the more I learn, the more I realize that I have so much more to learn. And it's a, it's a never ending road. So I learn about scientists. I learn about uh, people who have uh, worked in one area, worked in another area, and I try and bring it all together. But then I realize that I've got to, it's it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a rabbit hole too, because you end up just on this <laughs> never ending exploration of a fascinating area. 
so when you say that, is there truth to it? Because I, I, my mother and I will sometimes say this about my father that as he's gotten older, he's become hard headed. Is, is that almost <laughs> literal that his his yes. head is hardening because he's not keeping it flexible anymore? Is that somewhat? Yeah, what happened? Yeah, well, in a way, I mean, you talked about you know when we were having our chat before before we started, you know, when our eyes, our lens can harden. Yes, yeah. the brain. So the more we the more we make certain things cognitively automatic this is called automaticity and it's where a lot of our habits are stored the more we make it part of the hard wiring of our brain so in a way hard-headedness is exactly that it becomes part of the the neural structure of our brain and to change the way we do something to even to change our perspective of something um, requires a rewiring and it requires sometimes for us to to let go of the old stuff in order to learn the new stuff. But you know, when we do something new, we actually create a new connection in the brain. And then if we practice that and repeat it, we strengthen that connection. The big problem is of course, that the repetition and the practice can often take time. And, you know, and this is what we, we often give up early because we don't have the time to be bad at something. So we revert to what we're good at. <laughs> <laughs> or what we think we're good at. You know, it's really funny because I, I, um, I, this is more of a question rolled into a statement, but it is, is there a thought process that it's important to be intentional? Because what, what I realize is I'm intentional with certain things and, and I'll, I'll give you an example is I'm intentional to the point of um, I drive to work in different ways because I've realized and, and, you know, the first time you actually take that drive and you park and you don't even remember how you got there, you start to realize I'm on autopilot and I'm not thinking anymore and I don't want to do that. So I take different routes and when I take different routes, I realize my eyes are exploring as I'm driving and I, I have different scenery. It looks very foreign. The lights look very foreign. It, it's not something that I can just kind of sleep through. Um, I, I, I used to have somebody, uh, Helena, that I thought was really, it, it was a funny story that he was my person that worked the East coast when I used to work in, um, literally in Palm Springs. So it, he would come in at 6 AM. Everybody else gets there at nine, but he would leave early because his market opened early. But I would tell him that he is a creature of habit. And he's like, no, I'm not. And I go, dude, the <laughs> entire parking lot, I go, the entire parking lot is open. There is nobody here. And you park in the exact same parking spot every day. <laughs> and he started laughing because he had never even thought about it. But that was the first, and that, and that was, I was in my 30s. That was the first time it clicked with me on how we can go into autopilot and I became very intentional. So like I said, in, in a story, there's a question, how important is intention for us to really work on rewiring our brains or triggering the brains more often? That is such a great question because yeah, we do, we love, we love feeling efficient. So the brain drives things into this automatic pilot and it, it, it literally leaves the conscious mind and becomes part of our subconscious. And this is what we call, you know, we, we don't realize the bad habits that creep in when we're not aware of them. So for example, I always ask people, you know, um, if I, if I had an examiner waiting outside uh, to take you for a driving test now, and these are people who've been driving for years, 
are you absolutely sure you'll pass your driving test today? Right. And most people say they wouldn't, you know, but some people do say they, they would pass their test today. And I always say, well, that's overconfidence bias because we, we, <laughs> we like to think we're really good at driving. But but when we start to change our routines, and this is to your point, when we change our routines and we become much more aware of what we're doing, this intentional activity, um, then we are we're really breaking up, we're disrupting this auto automaticity and we're raising what we would otherwise make automatic uh, and subconscious, we're raising it to the conscious level. And in that way, we become much more aware of every everything around us, our surroundings, even our own maneuvers that we would normally, you know, be very um, reflexive about. And the brain makes so much, almost half of what we do is reflexive. It's, it's habitual, it's automatic. But the minute we change our routines and and uh, become much more aware and more intentional, we are we become much more connected to the world around us, and we switch on our senses much more, and we we have to become more intentional about you know as much as we can because that way um, we can create balance in our lives. We can uh, you know. Uh, uh, indulge in periods of rest and and restoration and and we recover from the stresses but we can be intentional about all aspects of our life without feeling guilty as well because you know sometimes we find ourselves doing nothing <laughs> we feel guilty about it but actually the word intentional is a very good one because we we activate much more of the brain when we when we do that i want to i want to um, circle back on something you said back in the netherlands you were just talking about healthy and feeling guilty about, you know, when we slow down in sleep, you said something and I was trying to pay attention. Um, you, you said something about when we sleep, we're, we're and, I, and I'm going to simplify it, but when we're sleeping, we're actually getting rid of the poisons in our brain that that's why sleep is important. Can you talk a little more? Oh uh, yeah. I mean, sleep, I mean, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a, uh, you know, an expert on sleep, but I'm fascinated by sleep and I have read a lot about sleep. So the, and research is, is ongoing with sleep. One of the really interesting studies was, has been done with mice. Now, when we sleep, um, we have to get out of the brain's way basically. So the brain can clean up. Um, and we build up a lot of metabolic waste when we're awake and we then have to do our housework uh, and clean up this metabolic waste and take the trash out effectively during sleep. And what happens is that the brains have to the brain has to uh, go through a, something called synaptic pruning, where it's pruning back. Um, a lot of the connections we don't need anymore. It's just doing its gardening, like pruning back a rose bush. And the teenage brain is going through this in a massive way. Um, but we go through this to uh, a much lesser extent every single night in sleep. And the gardeners in the brain are the glial cells, and they burst into life when we are asleep, and they they help the neurons communicate. But one of their most important roles is to take the trash out, to right. clean the body, to clean the brain of this metabolic waste. And it does this by, so the neurons are squeezing out these um, proteins, and two of them are very harmful. Two of them are, um, are associated with dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, they're called tau and beta amyloid. And if we don't allow the glymphatic, so that the, the neurons shrink to allow the glymphatic fluid to literally wash these poisons out, these toxins out, 
And if we don't do that, we do put ourselves more at risk of cognitive degenerative decline. So we do need to go to sleep and we do need to have allow ourselves, you know, sufficient sleep to allow this process to take place. Yeah. You see, I was paying attention. I, I remember paying attention. Uh, I'm so uh, uh, <laughs> that was actually a question I got at the end of the session. So <laughs> I said I, I was, was paying because that's even I was, more impressive. Yeah, I I was fascinated about taking yeah. the trash out and and, and, and the trash and, out. Yeah. I know. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and and I thought that was brilliant. Um, and truly, one of my, I think your gifts is that you can simplify it. You know, what you just talked about, the pruners and the gardeners and taking the trash out, that makes it easy for people to understand to say, OK, I can I can get that. And, and and that's what I appreciated because I was like, OK, I could follow this. It was really making a lot of sense. And you reminded me that sleep is important because I do need to get the trash out. And uh, so I, I don't get enough sleep ever, but it reminds me I need to focus on it even more. That that was that was my Thank takeaway. You. Well, I do have to apologize to a lot of the, you know, very, um, you know, very highly respected scientists out there because I dumbed down quite a lot of the science. <laughs> not, not that I have to dumb it down for, you know, but it, yeah. it, it's important that everybody, even non-scientists, can have, have access to this stuff so that they get it for their, their own lives. Yeah, you put them into metaphors that are easy for us to understand it. I I, I didn't consider it dumbing down as much as <laughs> you, you. you put it. You put it in an example that I could easily understand because I'm not a scientist, yeah. and 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 there's a lot of technicality around what you're talking about. So speaking of that, you said something else that really stuck out with me. I loved when you actually asked us um, how many of us have been to bias training, and two thirds of the hands go up, and then you say it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> I, I I could not stop laughing because I loved I, I loved and my takeaway was look our brains are hard, hardwired and candidly the bias is there and it's been there from the beginning of time for reasons I'd love for you to talk to that but what I took from that was it's not that biases are going to go away it's us understanding we have them and how we deal with it is what's important is that correct yeah it is and you know yeah. the brain we still have a brain that's designed to meet an environment or to deal with an environment where there were actually um, real threats to our life. So we have had to respond very quickly, sometimes overreact to something. So the example I give is, you know, the brain sees a, a snake or a stick or a snake or a stick. It has to err on the side of caution and see a snake, even if it was a stick, because any delay or getting it wrong could have cost us our lives. So the brain has evolved to cope with an environment where we were facing uh, real and actual physical uh, dangers. And we're now living in a world where uh, you could argue COVID was a real threat to our life. But most of the time we are living in a world where, you know, the dangers in our world are social. You know, they're the boss that's that's not very good to us or they're the colleague or the friend who's rejecting us. Or there's the on ongoing uncertainty of the possibility of what might be or what might happen or even something imaginary. These become the dangers to the brain now. But the brain still responds to the world around us. Um, in this very fast way, it predicts very quickly. Uh, and it has had to do this to keep us alive. And it's it's designed to make these very rapid judgments. And part of our psychological immune system is our bias system. So we need these biases. Biases represent a kind of a mental shortcut, also called a heuristic, to help us deal really quickly with the amount of information we're receiving, to help us make 
a very quick decision. Um, we've had to rely on these biases uh, for thousands of years, and we've developed them, you know, as the world has become more sophisticated or complex, we've added to these biases, but the biases will always be there because they help us cut through and make these quick decisions. And the thing is that we won't ever get rid of them because the brain won't ever learn not to think quickly. Well, it might eventually, but it's going to take a very long time. Right. So, and, and evolution takes a very long time. So we are left with this brain. So the best thing we can do is not, you know, unconscious bias training can bring us face to face with the biases that we might have. And some people use some biases more than other people. All of us think that other people are more biased than we are. (laughs) (laughs) That is is just, you know, I'm not biased, but they definitely are. Um, But we are all, we all carry these biases and we are more biased. We are, we're we're most biased when we are in a heightened emotional state, when we have insufficient information or when we have to make a quick decision. Uh, That's when we rely on them very heavily. So we have to face the fact that we are going to be using biases. And the best thing we can do is ask people who are very different to us, who have a different lens, a different view, a different perspective of the world to see, to tell us what they see so that we can then balance out our view and take into account information that we may otherwise not have thought of. Yeah, I I love that because to me, that is that is the true background and, and understanding that we need when we talk about what is so common today in discussion, diversity. Because I, I talk about diversity from a perspective of diversity of thought. Now, to get to diversity of thought, you have to bring in people from diverse backgrounds and experiences, or you can't get diversity of thought. But I, I, I've always been challenged because when we have those conversations, it's too often a conversation around gender and color versus experience and where we're coming from. And what you just explained is is the backbone to me of that, because I need that diversity of opinion so that I can, and I, and I tell my team always, I need that so I can make good decisions. It doesn't mean that I necessarily agree with everybody in the room, nor should I but I should be learning from everybody in the room so that I can take a look at all perspectives before we move forward. That was my takeaway when I was listening to that because I tied it more into a diversity discussion in my own head. Yeah, and I think it's right. It goes back to what you were saying about being intentional and changing routines. You know, we become creatures of habit very, very quickly and we attach to our own belief system. Right. We attach to our way of doing things and it's our way and it's the right way. And we don't really take into account anybody else's. Well, we do sometimes, but we don't do it enough. And we we are a lot of us exist in this state of unconscious incompetence or unconscious. <laughs> Or unconscious blindness, where we don't actually uh, see, you know, we don't question what what we can't see. We sometimes question what we do see, but we don't question what we can't see. So we do need this difference of opinion around us, and we may not like it. And I find this is one of the hardest conversations to have with people, because we hate it when people disagree with us. um, And we hate it when people can't understand how, what we're saying or how we're thinking. But actually that that inability to understand or that being faced with that is really important for us because it stretches our thinking and it stretches our perspective. And then we, if we took a pause, just a small pause to think, well, why might they be saying that? Why might they be thinking that? 
and then start to see the world a little bit differently, that can only be a good thing for the brain. I always say the brain, the brain and the gut are very similar in that they both need a diverse diet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah, I they, really they, do. I mean, the gut, the gut microbiome. So, so the interesting yeah. thing about the gut-brain axis is that you know, around ten percent of messages carried from through the vagus nerve, it's through a big cranial nerve. Uh, only about 10% go brain to gut, but 90% go gut to brain. So what we're putting in our gut also affects our brain. And the more diverse our diet, the gut microbiome evolved together with our immune system, it forms part of our immune system. The more diverse our diet, the higher our gut microbiome diversity and the stronger our gut is and the happier our gut is, and therefore the happier our brain is. So if we're furnishing both our brain and our gut with a diverse diet, then, you know, we're quids in. <laughs> <laughs> so Helena, let me ask you that, like what we do in our career, you know, in our job is when we're looking at these meetings, what you're also explaining is that a diversity of food throughout the day is going to help us from a thought perspective of getting people into the right mood. Is, it, is that fair? Yes, I mean, yeah. the more difference you can put around people, because we tend to like people who are like us, and we right. tend to follow the same routines because it makes the brain feel efficient, they're practiced, they're well-trodden roots, and we don't tend to deviate off those things because we like to feel efficient, we like to feel in control. The brain is an utter control freak, you know, we like, like to know what it knows. Um, but the minute you start furnishing it with difference and uh, unusual things and becoming intentional about changing routines and breaking things up a bit, altering mindsets and perspectives, then it can only be a good thing. People then become more open minded in how they see the world. And if you're giving your gut, you know, getting people to eat things they've never eaten before and putting something into the mouth for the first time, something new is a really big deal because, you know, it could historically it could have been poisonous so this is something that takes you know quite a lot of thinking about but it's really important we do this um and incidentally you know as we as we taste new things we always make comparisons with what we already know and this is something really interesting about the brain because the brain never looks at anything and says what is that it looks right. at everything and says what is that like so it uses past information to make sense of new incoming information and yeah. so when people eat frog's legs, for example, for the first time, they have to feel okay about eating something new. So they go, oh, it's okay. It tastes like chicken. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we make these comparisons all the time. <laughs> I guess, didn't you say like chicken is one of the most comforting, yes. uh, comforting pieces? That's why we always go back to chicken. We always go back to chicken. Yeah. And somebody told me, I think this has been researched, that uh, chicken sales go up during a recession. That's if you can afford the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, yeah, I mean, we like because it's a comforting, safe taste. And I think we 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 feel, you know, we feel reassured when we're eating something that we know that, you know, that we can link to a family occasion like a roast chicken that, you know or fried chicken, um, it is, has got a kind of a social element to it. So it's quite, a, it's quite an interesting thing. But yeah, we, but as long as you're not vegetarian or vegan, obviously you won't be liking the taste of chicken at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's so funny when you talked about that, about um, 
when you're when you're introduced to something different on how it really makes you think um we, well i i was chair for an organization it's it's a meeting planning organization in our industry it's the largest one there and we used to have this world education congress and, and it's traditional when you walk in of course there's the stage you've got all your seating and you have people that, that again habitual they're going to sit in the front they're going to sit in the middle they sit in the back it's who they are the one year we did this and we were really trying to change it up because we wanted people to have to be conscious about these things. We put the stage in the middle of the room. All the seating is around it. And when we opened up the doors, if you could, I mean, if I could have taken pictures, <laughs> oh, they, <I> you had. <laughs> they, did, they didn't know where to go because they're so used to, I know exactly where the front of the room is in front of the stage, but now depending on who's speaking, when they're speaking, I don't know what this is going to be. Um, I loved that because, it, and that that to me is like the laboratory of what you just talked about because we got to see it firsthand in the human behavior side. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? The brain, because the brain likes prediction, you know, it likes to yeah. predict really quickly. And, and if it can't, it starts to get into trouble and the neurons go a little bit nuts in the brain you know they start firing and they're thinking what is this what is this and then of course we activate the sound that you know the first thing that sounds the alarm is the amygdala when anything is uncertain or unpredictable and this is this almond shaped structure buried um you know deep inside in our um temporal lobe and it's sounding the alarm bells and and we start to feel a little bit anxious um, and of course, COVID did this to us because um, we had never, you know, nobody had had, most people had never been through anything like this before. I think right. the world hadn't. And so we had nothing to go on. We had, we, it was all, we were all in unknown territory and this posed a lot of problems. And now we're seeing the aftermath, you know, the psychological impact mm-hmm. of COVID, the residual um, anxiety and still feeling that it's not over. You know, the minute, we started to see light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we then, you know, had to face the war in Europe. Um, yeah. And then, and then uh, now we've got a cost of living crisis, uh, you know, and, you know, and a possible recession. And we and then now we're, in the UK, for example, we're talking about, you know, anticipating more spikes of COVID. So this constant state of non-closure is horrible for the brain because it needs to know that something's coming to an end. Yeah know that you can cope with anything as long as it's a finite time period but this ongoing sense of uncertainty is horrible well you know helena during during all of this i was doing updates for our industry around covid to try to cut through the noise and and that those those updates were about like there were people meeting there were people getting together there were ways to do it so we were trying to explain what was and what wasn't because unfortunately there was so much noise coming at us and so many narratives but it's interesting because today one of the things i share with people is when we talk about it being in the endemic phase of the virus i I remind them that is a psychological shift not a health shift we're still going to have cases. We are yeah. still going to have hospitalizations. We are still going to have deaths. But we and, and I remind people that when we have a flu season that's endemic here in the United States, we will lose twenty five thousand people. We we accept that that yeah. that is a baseline for a flu season, and that's why it is an endemic flu season. We're now there with COVID, but to your point, it's a mental shift, and people can't get there. 
because it, it's these alarm bells. And and this week, somebody sent me a note because, you know, we're talking about it, it, we still take a quick snapshot of what's going on around the globe from a COVID perspective. And the one thing I remind everybody, I'm only looking at one metric right now, and that is hospital or two hospitalizations and deaths. But hospi- you're, you're not going to get to deaths without hospitalizations. So hospitalizations is the metric to focus on. And when that is continuing to decline and not moving, it doesn't matter that we have a lot of cases because it's not leading to serious illness. And that's kind of that shift. And, and I realize that is the hardest lift. Because yeah. you're trying to move mentally. And what you just talked about, people people still, I, I mean, it's PTSD yeah. that, they are, that yes. they are dealing with from COVID. Yes, it's the, you know, lockdowns. It's, it's having your freedoms curtailed. It's having, not being able to see people. You know, I, I was doing um, a number of Zoom calls and I was feeling people's pain. I mean, at the beginning of, you know, at the very beginning of the pandemic, um, because I, um, I'm mainly a conference speaker, I lost everything. I mean, I lost all my right. work for the for the for the forecoming months, about up to eighteen months, and I watched all my income slide down a drain, which was terrifying because I could not have in- envisaged that. And the UK government did not help; uh, gave us no help whatsoever. My husband and I both worked for ourselves, and we were given no help whatsoever. I wrote to the chancellor six times, and he didn't write back. <laughs> <laughs> very, very cross with him um but you know it was a terrifying time but because I could I could have I had some sense of what was going on inside my head I had some sense of what I needed to do about it and the the key thing is that we can't wait for um feelings to come to return to normal right uh, the, the brain will take it takes a long time to reset so the best we can do is connect new thoughts with physical activity and it's really important to stay physically active not i'm not suggesting because we couldn't even get out you know people locked down and i was doing zoom calls with people who i could see just traumatized on screen and i was feeling their pain too and it's very hard it was very hard to deal with raw emotion and people are still feeling like that by the way you know many people are still feeling this terrible angst um, but all the, the most I could do was say to people, just just try to do simple things. Um, keep your hands busy because when the hands are busy, um, the brain starts to calm down. And you know, in the nineteenth century, physicians would give women knitting to do to just calm alarm bells. But we have to. So I would do things. You know, when I was in a terrible state, and I had no, I didn't know what was going to happen. I we had no idea when it was going to end or what kind of work I would get because nobody thought of putting things automatically online most people weren't set up for the virtual world um, you know don't take a com- huge conference and stick it virtually it's just a whole different ball game um, but I did I did a lot of things with my hands just to calm my head down to help me to think so the minute we introduce new thoughts we have to link them to action and this is how you gain personal mastery over your a very turbulent mind because this is the best we can do and it has to be simple little things and give yourselves little things to look forward to every day even if they're tiny little things so that we keep that sense of motivation going but lockdowns and loneliness and and feeling that things aren't ending yet and the uncertainty all over the world it's been punishing and you're right it's been we are going to be left with this sense of post-traumatic stress that that people will, and this will take longer to recover from than COVID. I mean, I know people are yeah. having long COVID, but part of long COVID is this 
this psychological bruising that's happened as well and people are still suffering and we just simply because you can't see it it's right. there and we have to allow people to have these conversations and and make it okay for people to talk about not feeling okay still and make it okay for people to talk about their ongoing fear um because it's still very much there i um let me ask you something because one of the things that came out, I, I, I used to say this, but can you tell me the impact of a smile and what that has to the brain? Because I think one of the reasons our world became so cold was because we're all wearing masks oh. and we and we lost people's smile. And I think about it today. My experience walking through airports today is back to normal where when I make eye contact with somebody, I get a smile. And that smile is just a little bit of a warmth and it makes me feel good. And, and it, it reminds us this connectivity around humanity. Now, is there science around what that is, that engagement? Yeah. And I love that. So, yeah. So the smile has to be a whole face thing. So when we smile, it's not just in the mouth, it has to go. So lots of different muscles are working up the face. So you've got the ocularis, the zygomatic, the duchette, everything is, Everything is working when you do when you give someone a genuine smile, the eyes crinkle, the the teeth are shown, and it's really, really hard not to respond with a smile to someone's genuine smile. If you get a big smile from someone, it's really hard not to smile back. And what happens is that the brain, so inside the um button next to our motor cortex, which is sort of at the top of our head, a subset of our motor neurons are something called mirror neurons, and these mirror the activity of someone. So for example, Mike, if I was watching you drink a cup of coffee and I wasn't drinking coffee, my own neurons for drinking coffee would activate. And they first saw this in a lab in Italy uh, <laughs> with monkeys. So they saw this, they, they, the researchers paused to have their lunch and the monkeys were still wired up. And they could see that the monkeys neurons for eating were actually activating watching the researchers eat their lunch (laughs) oh my goodness the brain is the brain is you know it's almost never still so when you uh when you smile at someone immediately the brain's neurons for smiling start to activate even before the face starts to move and then that gets the face to respond so our mirror neurons this is why happy people are often surrounded by happy people and miserable negative moany people are often surrounded by miserable grumpy negative moany people so the mirror neurons are there and this is why we are contagious and the other thing so we've got to see the whole face and just seeing the eyes isn't enough and i think seeing the mouth again after just seeing the eyes has become quite frightening for people because right. when you when you just see the eyes you don't get a sense of the whole face right it's really important that we get the masks off especially with children so that's the first thing um the heart is another it's a source of electromagnetic energy and this pumps energy out so a happy mood is pumping out a different heartbeat to a frustrated angry negative mood and that's a jagged heartbeat so that is pumping out energy and that's contagious and the other thing we lost um during covid was was um the ability to touch and of course right the word contagion is from the latin with and touch so touch has becomes demonized during a pandemic 
And, you know, when we touch, when we shake a hand, when we hug, when we cuddle, when we stroke, um, we release oxytocin, which is our bonding, love, trusting chemical. And this started to reduce massively. And so our ability to empathize will have started to degrade because we have to feel, um, you know, we have feeling and feeling. So touch and feeling go hand in hand. So this has all been, these have all been great casualties of COVID and we have to get back. I always say to people, cuddle and hug the people, you know, you can cuddle and hug. <laughs> Is it, you know, in the UK, 3.2 million extra pets were sold, I think. In yeah. Of, you know, we had to stroke something. We were like, you know, we had to cuddle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <So we, laughs> We've got to touch again. And I, you know, I'm hugging yeah. everybody. If they start backing away, I know not to go hug them. But right. I, you know, I my arms are outstretched and I, I hug as many people as I can because I think it's really important. I do tell them I'm fine, you know, I've had a test. <laughs> but, well, a yeah. war- disclaimer before you come in. Oh my God. Well, <laughs> you know what's wrong? It's great about the meetings industry that I'm in. We used to joke that I I used to say we're like an Italian family. We love, we hug, we kiss. Oh, it, it, it's it. It, it, it's who we are. And I think that was really hard on our industry specifically because that's what we are so used to. And what I was impressed with, um, you know, and, and I always say different parts of the world, different parts of even in the United States, our experiences are very different. And and fortunately, I have hotels around the globe, so I got to see all of this. But with some of these areas that meetings have been going on for over a year and a half, they started hugging the very first time they got together it is oh, human that. nature and, oh, and 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 i think there was a part of us getting so depressed when we were f- firmly believing we're never going to shake hands again um i know, I know. yeah I, I think the the elbow bump was the stupidest oh, thing ever created. So, I mean, what, was, what was that? It wasn't even a, it wasn't even a thing. I didn't even I didn't even bother with that. I just, I'm going to wait until I can full scale hug again. Yeah, and, and going back to our original conversations, leave it to guys to come up with something that silly. So it, it just it made no sense whatsoever. But I, I I couldn't agree with you more. There there was a warmth in the world that was missing, and while there was so much social unrest during that time frame as well i th- i thought it was adding it was adding literally fuel to a fire because the world was so angry and so pulled apart and i'm hopeful it's always my hope that you know as we start getting back to some normalcy and we get back to human connection and you know what you just said stuck with me so there really is truth that you know, your enthusiasm is contagious. Your, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Your, your joy is contagious. contagious. Yeah. Joy, is, joy is contagious. And we have to find the joy with people. There is a dark side of oxytocin, which it does bind us to our tribe and our in-group. And it does separate us from other people that we consider outside. So I think across the world, we did become more polarized. We became more attached to certain groups and we had we became attached to certain causes to fight for we found our our people that would help us you know people did become angry you're absolutely right and we so we 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 wanted to be angry with people who were like us and what we have to find now is a way of bringing together people much more so you know minimum widening the in-group so that we see ourselves as one big human family rather than separated and polarized the way we have become because this is this is the dark side of oxytocin it does 
bind us to our own tribe, but it takes us away. It separates us from others. And I always think travel is critical yeah. at uh, getting people to feel part of a global family rather than just staying stuck in one place. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And I, I actually add to that. I, I think it is the it is the greatest weapon around racism and ignorance around the Absolutely. world, because when you see cultures and experience different cultures, you start to learn and your curiosity kicks yeah. up to learn more about it. And it, it was lacking. All of that went All away. That was yeah. yeah. Oh, so yeah. Let, let, let me ask, uh, you, you had a great one that you, you just blew me away when we we're talking about attention, because, you know, we, we all think we can multitask and we all think <laughs> we can do it really well. Um, I, you know what popped into my head? I, I think there is one role and 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 it's my, my dad was uh 42 years air force intelligence and also with the air national guard and there's one thing he used to always tell me pilots are a unique breed and when i think about multitasking i look at pilots because <laughs> what 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 they have to do a fighter pilot i'm talking about a fighter pilot a fighter pilot to understand what's going around them be able to keep up with what's happening in their plane when you're dog fighting that is multitasking. But to me, that's why there is only a handful of people that can actually do that. <laughs> because what you what you were making very clear to us is we we are not good at multitasking and, and attention is not easy to keep. Can you talk a little bit to that? Because uh, I, I just think we all think that people can multitask. Yeah, our, our attentional system is supremely limited. And I think even pilots, I mean, I think it's it's a big generalization to say yeah. no one can multitask. But I think pilots have learned a very high and sophisticated degree of uh, cognitive and mental agility. So they can switch quickly between tasks, which Got might it. be different to trying to do two things at the same time, which is almost a physiological impossibility for the human brain. Now, our attentional system works like a torch spotlight. So you shine a spotlight at one thing. And in doing that, you focus on one thing, but you are literally putting other things into darkness. And so our attentional system and biases almost, you know, go hand in hand. The brain is designed to, to focus on one thing, but it doesn't see anything else. If we're focusing on one thing, it's very hard to um to see or take in information and if you learn very good focus and i'm the eldest of 10 children so i learned to focus from a very early age you know and, and block out the noise around me if i was reading so it was it was a very it's a very um it's a very fascinating very limited phenomenon so when we when we try and do two things at the same time we find that there's a cognitive cost and when we interrupt ourselves when we're paying attention we are we put ourselves at danger of more error, and we we don't uh, we don't do the best job we possibly can. So sustained attention is very important for us, but it's also quite difficult for the human brain because the brain absolutely loves being distracted, and so our <laughs> attentional system is always being hijacked by uh, this this craving of distraction. And the way it gets distracted is that you know, the, the brain switches on to something. So people who are doing Zoom calls and then had pop-up emails coming through, you know, is this feeling of, I'm just going to finish that email um, and that feeling of, I'm just going to get it done. And what happens is the brain switches on. So the brain's designed to be distracted. It's, it's designed to be able to take in anything that could potentially cause a threat to our lives. So it has to be distracted. 
And so this is why sustained attention is quite a difficult ask for the brain. Um, and so we get distracted, we switch the brain on with a chemical called noradrenaline, which literally goes everywhere and our pupils dilate to take in more information. And this can mean that we're terrified, but it could also mean that we're in love and we're attracted to right. something, that the pupils dilate. Um, and then we get a, a chemical that rewards us for being distracted, which is dopamine, because dopamine is released in anticipation of something. So the brain then rewards us for being distracted. So this is, you know, the craze distraction. We reward it, we reward ourselves for being distracted. And so we keep allowing ourselves this distraction. But what we need to do is pay attention. And then we think we're being very efficient by trying to do two things at the same time. But actually it's very, very, it's it's impossible to do that. You can't, you know, you can do the washing up or ironing, listening to music, but you're not paying attention to both things with all your attention at the same time. It's impossible to do that. Yeah, I, I love that. And, you know, it's funny, my um, my mom will tell you when I was in school, um, I, I always had to have a TV on or music on or something while I was doing my homework. But I can tell you to this day, and I still do, uh, the thing that bothers me is pure quiet. But yeah. Yes. But I, I force myself to tune all that out. I need the background noise yes. to, to focus. Yeah. And, and, and that may be counterintuitive, but it's, it, it's my, it's my, the way I work, because yes. if I don't have that and it's too quiet, it's when my mind wanders. Yeah. When, when I have the noise, it makes me focus on whatever I'm doing. Yeah, and actually absolute silence is quite is not something we like either. No, it's actually quite good to have a bit of a buzz. And that's a sort of a yeah. white noise. Yep. around you but you you learn to tune it out so you're not paying attention to it no you're paying attention you know it's there it's almost a reassuring buzz in the background but you're not paying attention to it if you listened to the music around you or paid attention to the television program you wouldn't be able to do your homework so it's it's a noise it's a white noise it's a reassuring noise in the background it's a hum of activity that allows you to feel safe to be able to concentrate on your homework. But why complete silence can be actually quite terrifying. And the brain also being quite negatively biased. So it's learned to spot danger before it sees what's safe. It takes us off. If we're left to our own thoughts too much, we start to ruminate and worry. So the brain tends to wander off half the time, but when it wanders off, it tends to wander and hook to unhappy thoughts. So. Um, you know, we know we deep down, we know this, we don't like being left alone with our, th our own thoughts too much. Um, so this is why also why we love being distracted. <laughs> <laughs> and we are a distracted society. I mean, we are. No, I mean distractions no are everywhere. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, look, we could go on for hours. And, you know, I'd love to welcome you back uh, at some point, because this has been phenomenal. Um, I, I, I mean it sincerely that I, I learned so much uh, seeing you, but even in this conversation that it, it continues to really drive me to understand more about how people think and how people behave so that I can be most impactful in my leadership roles with them. Because I, I think that's the piece that's missed. If we don't understand how people are wired, yeah. We're never going to be completely as effective as we can be in trying to inspire, motivate, or move them the way we need to. So that's why I think this conversation is so important. And thank you so much, Mike, because I always learn from the people I talk to every day. And I've I've learned so much from talking to you too. So I have a huge 
huge thank you to say to you as well. So thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Uh, we will definitely see you soon. And uh, I hope so. yes, and if there's anything we can do for you, let us know. But really appreciate you being with us today. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, hope very much to come back because I'd love to continue the conversation. Awesome. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Meeting Room, presented by Associated Luxury Hotels International. Alhai is a global sales and marketing organization representing the finest luxury hotels, cruise lines, and destination management companies. For the latest industry news and to see Alhai's robust portfolio, follow us on LinkedIn and check out our website at alhi.com. To learn more about Dr. Helena Bosky or book her as a potential speaker, visit our partners, Leading Authorities, at leadingauthorities.com and search by name. Today's podcast was sponsored by Intercontinental Buckhead, an elegant city hotel poised at the intersection of luxury and tradition. Renowned for understated, excellent service and surpassed expectations, the Intercontinental Buckhead delivers a hotel stay that sets a new standard for travel.